0: Turned Up Dead is a true crime podcast. The cases we cover include details of violence, sexual assault, suicide, and homicide. It is not suitable for children, and listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed in this show are those of individuals and not Turned Up Dead. A quick content warning before I start. Although there are no details, or any graphic descriptions, this episode does mention suicide and the death of an unborn baby. At around 4.40pm on June 4th, 1992, Norman Edward Gilfoyle arrived home from work. He didn't see his wife, Paula Gilfoyle in their home, but he noticed a letter from her in the kitchen. 33-year-old Paula Gilfoyle was eight and a half months pregnant. Being due to give birth to a baby girl in two weeks... Paula had already gone on maternity leave from her position at the Champion Spark Plugs Factory near Liverpool in the UK. After reading just the first few lines of the two-page letter, Eddie stopped reading and took it to his parents' house. The first two lines read, Dear Eddie, I've decided to put an end to everything and in doing so ended a chapter in my life that I can't face up to any longer. I don't want to have this baby that I'm carrying. I wish now that I'd got rid of it.. End quote. If Eddie Gilfoyle is to be believed, he had no idea that his wife and unborn child were hanging dead in the garage of their home. Hello, I'm Fiona, and welcome to Turned Up Dead this month. I'm delving into the death of Paula Gilfoyle and her unborn daughter, Natasha. Although first recorded by police as suicide, Paula's husband Eddie was arrested and found guilty of murder. Paula's family firmly supported the prosecution's theory and to this day believe Eddie killed Paula, whereas Eddie, his family and his supporters believe he is an innocent man who was wrongfully convicted. Eddie Gilfoyle was released after serving 18 years in prison but his conviction wasn't overturned. The question I'm asking myself, and anyone listening to this episode, is did the husband do it? Thirty-year-old Norman Edward Gilfoyle went by the name Eddie. He had served seven years in the Royal Army Medical Corps, and had served in Ireland and completed two tours of the Falklands. In 1992, he was working as an operating theatre assistant, at the nearby private Murrayfield Hospital. Eddie and Paula had met at Eddie's sister's wedding in 1988, and they had married the next year in June. This was Eddie's second marriage, his first being in 1981 and being legally dissolved the year he met Paula. However, by the end of 1991, Eddie believed his second marriage to also be over. That summer, and going into the autumn of 1991, Eddie had become close to a woman he worked with named Sandra Davis. Like Eddie, Sandra was married and experiencing difficulties in her relationship. Earlier in 1991, Eddie and Paula bought a house in the village of Upton, about a 10-minute drive away from Liverpool across the River Mersey. The house, which was on Grafton Drive had three bedrooms, but needed a lot of work before it was ready to move into. Whilst renovating the house, Eddie and Paula lived with Paula's parents. In August 1991, Paula went on vacation to Turkey with her mother and a female friend. This upset Eddie as he felt the money should have been spent on their new home. In autumn, Eddie left Paula's parents' house and moved into Grafton Drive. The major work had already been done, but it still needed to be decorated. Paula, not wanting to move in until it was completely finished, stayed with her parents. Eddie would sometimes stay with Paula at her parents' house, but his frustrations grew when she continued to delay moving into their new home. It was during this time that Eddie and Sandra had become close. Eddie brought up the subject of formal separation with Paula, And in October 1991, he told Sandra that he and Paula had separated and asked her to move in with him. Sandra, who later said she and Eddie hadn't even seen each other outside of work, let alone been intimate with one another, agreed. Following this, Eddie asked Paula to collect her things from the house and told her of the plan for Sandra to move in. However, when Paula came to the house, She dropped a bombshell. She was pregnant with his child. Following this revelation, Eddie decided to stay with Paula and end things with Sandra. He called Sandra to tell her of this. Paula also telephoned Sandra and told her to have no more contact with her husband. Paula then moved into Grafton Road. In the following days, in another letter, This one being typed rather than handwritten, Paula referred to her current situation as being the lowest ever in her life and spoke of being undecided about keeping the baby or giving it up for adoption. Paula's pregnancy was confirmed by her doctor on November 11th, 1991. To those looking in, Eddie and Paula seemed to be living a happily married life with a baby on the way. But Eddie seemed to still have feelings for Sandra as on her birthday on February 11th 1992 he sent her a Valentine's card as well as a birthday card. In April 1992 Paula wrote a letter to Eddie which has since become known as the Nigel letter. Paula had previously told Eddie that she had become pregnant on one of the nights Eddie had spent with her at her parents house but in this letter. She said he was not the father, and that a man named Nigel was. The Nigel letter reads as follows. Dear Eddie, I am sorry for what I am about to write, but I can't go on living a lie anymore. I've cheated and lied to you. I just can't carry on anymore. I'm having to write it down on paper, as I can't tell you face to face. The baby I'm carrying is not yours. I have been having an affair for the last 14 months with a guy called Nigel. The baby is his. If you work it out, the baby could not possibly be yours. I was living at mum's at the time. We hardly seen each other, never mind sleeping together. I tricked you into thinking the baby was yours by the dates I gave you. In fact, the baby is due three or four weeks before that. I know I have messed your life up. I can't apologise enough. What you could have had as well. No one knows. Not even Julie about Nigel. But they will soon. Nigel has asked me to go and live with him abroad. I have said yes. You can have the house and the furniture. I will only be taking a few small items. You can divorce me on adultery. Send the papers to mum and dad for me to sign, as when I have told them what is really going on, I will give them my forwarding address. I would like you to try and pick up the pieces with Sandra, as I know she really loves you. You deserve better than me. Don't do anything stupid. I'm not worth it. Hopefully by the weekend, I'll be out of your life for good, and I'll be starting my new life with Nigel. I suppose you feel like hitting me. You never have but I bet you feel like it now. You'll hate me. Think I'm selfish. I did love you in my own way. It's just that Nigel came along and my life changed. You're probably wondering, where did I find time? Well, you know that computer course I said I was on. I only went twice. I used it as an excuse to get out. I can't imagine how you must feel, about the baby especially coming with me to antenatal, feeling it kick inside. How could I lie to you? It would have to be a lie forever. I know you would like a family, but Sandra or whoever will provide you with that. I think in my own way I knew the marriage was nearly over, as you hardly touch me unless I touch you. We never really kiss, we're just like good friends in a way. Everyone will be shocked, but it's what I wanted all along. I've destroyed you in every way that I could, and saying sorry won't help you. But if I could turn back the clock, I would. You must go on and forget me and my family. It's all down to you now. You have been great with me over the whole situation. I couldn't have been so calm about it as you have been. But as you said, you only stayed because of the baby. It was not for me. I wonder what my family and friends will say. It's going to be interesting. I hope they don't blame you. I will tell them everything once I'm gone. You don't have to worry. They will all have to accept it as I'm not changing my mind. Just as you won't ever let me back into your life. I've got to... Illegible. Now. But at least you know we're parting as friends. Not enemies, like in your previous marriage. Take good care of yourself. Good luck for your future. Love from Paula. The letter was handwritten, and there's no dispute over who wrote it. However, prosecutors would later claim that Eddie had forced Paula to write the letter and that he had dictated it to her. Eddie showed the letter to Sandra in an attempt, claimed the prosecution, to win her back and discredit Paula. But by this time, Sandra wanted nothing to do with him. No man named Nigel is known to have come forward. Around this time, Eddie told a number of people that the baby wasn't his and that his wife was leaving. The letter Eddie had glanced at on the afternoon of June 4th, 1992 was also handwritten by Paula. Again, there was no disputing this. According to Eddie, he believed Paula had left him. When he got to his parents' house, only his mother, Jessie Gilfoyle, was home. When she read the letter in full, it became clear that this was not an I'm leaving letter, but a suicide letter. In full, the letter read, Dear Eddie, I've decided to put an end to everything, and in doing so ended a chapter in my life that I can't face up to any longer. I don't want to have this baby that I'm carrying. I wish now that I had got rid of it. When I was thinking about it, I wouldn't be hurting the way I am now. Don't blame yourself, Eddie. It's not your fault. I've caused all your pain and heartache. I've destroyed you and your life. I just hope you can rebuild everything and realise your goals and dreams. I'm sorry for hurting my family, your family and my friends, but most of all hurting you. I never meant to. Don't be afraid to tell people the truth. They can't hurt me because I'm not there to face up to them all. I've loved you in my own way, but I've destroyed it all through my own stupidity. All my moaning and nagging at you wouldn't have helped us to rebuild things between us. Eddie, I've done some things in my life that I'm not proud of, but I got through somehow. But this is just too much. I can't face up to my problems anymore. I had packed a bag and even moved some of my clothes already, but I can't run anymore. It's the end of the line for me on this earth. Give my mum and dad a keepsake for me. Explain things as best you can. Tell them I love them and that I'm sorry for everything. Eddie, I hope you will find it in your heart to forgive me and that one day we will meet again. Until that day, take care of yourself. Don't be afraid in life. I will watch over you and protect you from harm. I've ruined your life. It's the best I can do. Maybe it will be the one thing I will do right in life. I can't change or alter what I've done, but if I could, I would. They say time heals a broken heart. I hope your heart heals pretty quick. I don't want you to waste any more of your life. It's time to turn the clock forward instead of backwards and go forward. Good night and God bless. Love, Paula. P.S. I apologise for all the pain and suffering I have caused by taking my own life. I don't mean to cause any problems for anyone. No one is to blame except myself. Eddie's mother, Jessie, suggested they wait until his father come home so they could look for Paula together. When his father, Norman, arrived home shortly after 6pm, they all drove to the house on Grafton Drive in search of Paula. Eddie's father looked around the house, but again Paula didn't seem to be there. They telephoned Paula's friends and family to try to locate her, but no one had seen her. Within an hour, they had checked all the places they thought Paula might have been, but had turned up nothing. Eddie had the Nigel letter with him as well, which he showed to his mother. Eddie's sister was married to Paul Caddick, who at the time was a police sergeant. Norman called Paul, who was off-duty, and he arrived at the house at about 7.10pm. When he read the letter, he contacted Upton Police Station and asked for an on-duty officer to come to the house. When PC James Tosney arrived, they searched the land and properties outside of the house. Then, Paul Caddick opened the locked garage doors to a site I'm sure is burned forever in his mind. Eight-and-a-half-month-pregnant Paula was hanging by her neck from a rope tied to a roof beam of the garage. Paula's legs were crossed at the ankle, and one foot rested on the bottom rung of the metal stepladder she had presumably used to hang herself. By this time, it was 7.30pm, and it was obvious that Paula was dead. Paul shut the garage doors and waited for the coroner and police to arrive. When the coroner's officer, PC Brian Jones, arrived at the scene, he cut the rope above the knot of the noose and laid Paula's body on the garage floor. The section of the rope that remained around her neck was so tight it was barely visible. No photographs were taken before her body had been cut down, or of the rope that had been used to hang her. When crime scene officers arrived, PC Jones told them there was no need for photographs, as the coroner didn't need them. This suggests P.C. Jones had already concluded Paula's death to be a suicide, and when criminal investigation officers arrived, they were told they weren't needed. Mistakes were also made by the police surgeon, Dr. Roberts. He examined Paula's body and took some photographs, but didn't take Paula's body temperature, which was needed to better establish the time of death. When Detective Inspector Fitzsimmons arrived on the scene, he was told the crime scene officers had taken photographs and processed the scene. The rope that remained attached to the beam was removed and taken by the coroner's officer. Fitzsimmons had examined Paula's body and seen the letters. Her body was then taken to the mortuary of the local hospital. The next day, a post-mortem was conducted, which revealed no suspicious features or any drugs or alcohol in her system. The ligature was removed from her neck and there was bruising where it had been. This part of the rope that had been around her neck was then destroyed by the mortuary assistant. Police first believed there to be no suspicious circumstances surrounding Paula's death, and it was treated as a suicide. According to those who believe in Eddie Gilford's innocence, the police only began to change their minds after Paula's friends and family had come forward and told police that Paula was full of joy and had no reason to take her own life. Three of Paula's friends, Diane, Julie and Christine, went to the police and told them that two months before her death, Paula had confided that she feared for her own safety because Eddie had made her write suicide notes under the pretense of it being for a suicide course at work and had taken her into the garage and shown her how to put up a rope. This account from Paula's friends was ruled inadmissible by the judge during Eddie's trial. At the time of his trial in 1993, hearsay evidence such as this was only allowed if it was something that had been said within a week of someone's death. There had been no suicide course at Eddie's work, but Eddie had said that he had spoken with Paula and Diane's husband about the possibility of doing a course which involved consideration of suicide. Paula had bought two sets of things for the baby, so one could stay with her mother, who would care for the baby when Paula went back to work. The nursery was ready, and Paula had asked a vicar to christen the child when born. Two days before her death, Paula had taken out child care and baby name books from the library. The night before her death, Paula spoke with her father, who said she was full of beans. Though on the same day, Paula had had a conversation with another friend about a man they both knew who had hung himself. According to this friend, Paula had commented quote, How could someone hang themselves? How could you get so low? His wife will feel guilty for the rest of her life. End quote police began to take a closer look at the apparent suicide letter. DCI Paul Baines told the Liverpool Echo in 1992 that some aspects of the letter were puzzling and there was cause for concern. Detective Superintendent Jeff Harrison said, quote, There are worrying facets to this matter and we are still trying to get to the bottom of it. End quote. On June 8th, 1992, Eddie was arrested and questioned. He denied having anything to do with Paula's death. In one of his interviews, he said that after he received the Nigel letter and just two days before her death, Paula had told him that her brother-in-law, Peter Glover, was the father of her unborn child. After being questioned for hours, Eddie was released and Peter Glover later denied having an affair or being sexually involved with Paula. The police, still being unable to rule out foul play, were now treating Paula's death as a murder investigation, and so her funeral was postponed indefinitely. A second post-mortem was ordered by a home office expert. This time, two small scratches were noticed on Paula's neck, which this pathologist believes significant. At Eddie's trial the following year, the judge mentioned these when instructing the jury on their deliberations. He said, There were almost certainly Paula's fingernail marks. They could have been caused by an attempt to free the rope because she was an unwilling victim, or she may have been committing suicide and her hands moved to her neck in an involuntary action. On June 22nd, nearly three weeks after Paula's death, Eddie gave a press conference. As Eddie told the press he had nothing to do with Paula's death, police were planning to return to Grafton Drive to re-examine the scene. At the police conference, Eddie told the public, I would not have harmed her at all. I loved the bones of her and I was looking forward to my first baby. I deny having anything to do with her death. She was the best thing any man could wish for. We loved and adored each other and did everything together. My whole world has been turned upside down. It is one big nightmare." End quote. During the second look at Paula and Eddie's home, police discovered a rope that had been tied into a slipknot in a drawer in the garage. This was later claimed to be a practice rope during Eddie's trial. However, the circumstances of the discovery of this practice noose are murky. P.C. Cartwright was certain that the rope was not there on June 8th when he searched the garage and he had even looked in the drawer where the rope was said to have been found. On July 8th 1992, Eddie was called back to the police station. At the time, Eddie was in the southern English seaside town of Bournemouth with his mother on a break to get away from it all. Eddie returned to Upton where he was arrested for a second time. After even more questioning he was once again released without charge. Since Paula's death, Eddie had faced a great deal of harassment, which culminated on August 17th, 1992. Eddie had been staying with his father and a rope knotted into a noose was thrown at the window of his father's house. Two days after this, Eddie was admitted into hospital, suffering from stress. On September 7th, 1992, Eddie was arrested whilst at Clatterbridge Hospital and taken to Manor Road Police Station where he was charged with murder. The next day he appeared in court but only spoke to confirm his name and address. Bail was refused and Eddie was remanded in custody at Liverpool's Walton Prison for another week. On the afternoon of October 2nd, a reconstruction of Paula's death was done. Officers led by DCI Paul Baines, spent 45 minutes in the garage of Number 6 Grafton Drive, where they had a policewoman attempt to climb the ladder and tie a rope over the roof beam. The policewoman who did this was eight months pregnant like Paula, but she was an inch shorter. After several failed attempts of attaching the rope to the beam, the policewoman was able to get the rope over the beam, but she was unable to tie a knot in the rope as they presumed Paula must have done. The Home Office pathologist, Dr James Burns, and Dr William Lawler for the defence were also present, and the entire reconstruction was filmed. Later that month, Eddie's defence requested more time before going to trial. Eddie had been held at Walton Prison since his arrest, and in November an application for bail was refused by Liverpool Crown Court. Almost five months after Paula's death, her body was still being kept in the hospital's mortuary. Following UK law, bodies are usually released to the next of kin, which in this case was Eddie. With Eddie awaiting trial for her murder, it's understandable that Paula's parents, Cliff and Joan Carpet, didn't want this to happen. Wanting to handle their daughter's funeral and burial themselves, Paula's family initiated legal proceedings for the right to do this. However, Eddie Guilfoyle's solicitor said it was his client's right to bury Paula. In a legal first, Paula's parents were granted permission to bury Paula, despite her husband Eddie being her next of kin. The funeral for Paula and her baby, who she had named Natasha, was held at Morton Presbyterian Church, almost ten months after her death on April 2nd, 1993. Eddie's trial began on June 10th, 1993, at Liverpool Crown Court. The prosecution argued that Eddie had murdered his wife and staged it as suicide. In their opening, they told the court, quote, "...if her feet had gone free, they would have touched the floor. Therefore, she has been hanged by another hand, and it was the defendant that did it." End quote. The jury saw the video of the reconstruction that showed the difficulties that the pregnant police officer had had when trying to get the rope over the roof beam, and her failed attempts at being able to tie a knot. The prosecution said Eddie had tricked Paula into writing the suicide note, under the pretense of it being for the suicide course at work. Another witness, Miss Coltman, also testified that Eddie had told her that he was taking a suicide course at work. Paula's doctor testified that Paula had no history of depression and the home office pathologist, Dr Burns, testified that an easy way to kill someone would be to suddenly drop a noose over their head and then grab their legs and hold that person down until they were dead. Both doctors spoke of how the rope was tied and said Paula would not have been able to get the rope over the beam. Despite the judge saying that tying knots is not a medical issue, and the doctors weren't experts in throwing ropes over beams, this evidence was admitted at trial. Paula's time of death was said to have been three to eight hours before she was discovered, and it was claimed that Eddie disappeared for two hours whilst at work on the day Paula died, which would have allowed him time to kill her and stage her suicide. Eddie Guilfoyle didn't testify, and no evidence was called on his behalf. The jury did hear that Eddie had previously said that Paula was terrified at the prospect of having a baby, and under cross-examination, Dr Burns conceded that the fingernail marks could have been caused by someone committing suicide. The so-called practice noose had been introduced by the prosecution, and Eddie's defence argued that if he had murdered her, he wouldn't have left a practice noose to be found by police. In his closing for the defence on June 30th, David Turner, QC, told the court, quote, If the prosecution is correct, he has the composure to take his wife into the garage and leave her hanging, and the composure to go to work. It would mean he has the acting ability of Laurence Olivier standards, because everyone who saw Eddie on the night of the death and on following days has testified to his grief. End quote. The jury, who had been taken to see the scene for themselves, began their deliberations on July 1st, 1993. Whilst deliberating, the jury asked to see the video of the reconstruction again. After 15 hours, on July 3rd, they unanimously found Eddie guilty of Paula's murder. Eddie Guilfoyle was then sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum of 17 years. In 1993 and 2000, Eddie appealed this conviction. Issues were raised surrounding key alibi witnesses not being interviewed and other witnesses being ignored. In addition, Eddie wasn't given his antidepressant drugs during trial, which meant his ability to understand proceedings was impaired. Both appeals were dismissed. As Eddie was led back to his cell after his 1995 appeal, He shouted to the court, I'm still innocent. Eddie's family criticised police for the handling of the investigation, and in particular their loss of crucial evidence. There have been internal investigations into this, and mistakes were acknowledged by police. However, the full contents of a 1993 investigation by the Police Complaints Authority has never been fully disclosed. One of the witnesses, who gave evidence during Eddie's trial about him telling Paula about the suicide course at work, had stated that she, quote, wanted to help clear Paula's name, end quote, and she commented that she hated Eddie, but still her testimony was allowed. A lot of emphasis was placed on Paula being happy and in no way suicidal, but this isn't what other evidence suggested. As a teenager Paula was prescribed Valium after the end of a long-term relationship. This relationship had been with a man named Mark Roberts, who had raped and killed a woman in a local park. Paula had continued her relationship with Mark for a while after he was convicted and had picked up the clothes he had been wearing at the time of the murder from the police station. Other evidence that suggested Paula wasn't as joyful as she was said to be was found in the house. Another suicide letter had been written in a notebook. The letter itself hadn't been found, but what had been written could be detected from indentations left in the pages beneath it. Domestic accounts had been written in the same notebook, which suggested that this first suicide letter, referred to as the indented letter, had been written before March 1992. This letter mentioned an affair that Paula had been having for almost a year and a half, and that the father of her child was going away, and she had nothing left to live for. It's important to note that DNA testing later revealed that Eddie was the father of Paula's baby, although this doesn't rule out the possibility that she had had an affair. Another unfinished note was found in the kitchen. It had been addressed to whom it may concern, and said, quote, I apologise, I'm ending my life. I have taken my own life and I'm doing... End quote. And it trailed off. Throughout the trial in 1993, it was assumed that pregnant women rarely commit suicide. But sadly, this just isn't true. One study revealed suicide to be the most common cause of death for pregnant women. Eddie had some influential supporters of his innocence. Alison Halford was the assistant chief constable of Merseyside Police at the time of Paula's death. After she examined the case, she visited Eddie in prison and believed him to be a victim of quote, a huge miscarriage of justice. End quote. In the summer of twenty ten, a box of Paula's diaries surfaced. They had all been written by Paula starting from age twelve to age twenty two. These revealed a much darker side to Paula than what the jury were led to believe back in 1993. Before agreeing to marry Eddie, Paula had two previous fiancés, one being the man who had raped and killed a woman who Paula dated in her teens. After this man had threatened suicide, Paula had attempted to take her own life by overdosing on pills. Her second fiancé was a man named Gordon who she was engaged to when she had met Eddie. Gordon had himself written a suicide note, which Paula had kept. Although I couldn't find a copy of this note, it was said to have used very similar wording to the suicide letter found after Paula's death. On December 22nd, 2010, at age 49, Eddie Gilfoyle was released on licence after serving more than 18 years in prison. In the UK, many prisoners are released before their sentence ends in what's called being on licence, such as this. Prisoners on licence are supervised by a probation officer and must stick to certain conditions for the remaining months or years of their sentence. Upon his release on licence, Eddie was prevented from talking to the media about his case and it didn't stop at him. The parole board initially ordered that he, quote, must not contact press or media, either personally or through a third party. End quote. In other words, Eddie was legally barred from protesting his innocence, and in the eyes of UK law, is still guilty of Paula's murder. Paula's family still believe Eddie is guilty. After Eddie's release in 2010, Paula's sister Margaret told the Liverpool Echo quote, As far as I'm concerned, He's 100% guilty, and he'll always be guilty. End quote. In June 2019, Eddie Guilfoyle took part in a silent vigil outside the Royal Courts of Justice. Around 60 people stood for 15 minutes' silence, with tape covering their mouths and holding signs to protest the injustice they have faced. Thejusticegap.com reported on the protest and included a quote from Eddie, he said, quote, For me, it's traumatizing. I came down here in 1995 with evidence that should have got me out of jail. They refused to hear it. He continued, quote, I came down here in 2000. Again, they refused to hear it. My wife took her own life. I was in work when she died, and the evidence shows that. And I can't get that heard in this court. That can't be right, can it? This is the first time I've been in front of this building since then. I should have been out here celebrating with my family on both occasions. And here we are, 27 years later, I'm still here, still convicted, for a crime that never happened. End quote. As of the time of recording, in September 2021, Eddie Guilford's murder conviction still stands. So what do I think? Please remember I have no background or education in law or law enforcement and these are just my personal opinions. If I had been on the jury during Eddie's trial in 1993 and heard everything that I've read that was said at trial, I think I probably would have said he was guilty. However, giving the information that came out after Eddie was found guilty, I lean towards him being innocent and I certainly don't believe he was giving a fair trial. Too much evidence was lost and omitted, and the prosecution seemed to rely quite a lot on beliefs about pregnant women committing suicide, and the beliefs of Paula's friends and family. I think it was kind of silly of the prosecution to say that Paula must have been hanged by someone else, because her feet were able to touch the floor. The coroner's officer said that the body touched the floor in about half of the hanging deaths he had seen, and unfortunately... This is something I know from personal experience. About 10 years ago, somebody I shared a house with attempted suicide by hanging and was very nearly successful. I can't remember exactly what was used. It might have been a belt, but it definitely wasn't a rope. They made a noose from something that they had found in their bedroom, put it around their neck, tied the other end to the door handle and simply sat down. Thankfully, other people in the house noticed and were able to get into the room in time. This happened outside of the UK and the culture of where it happened played a large part in their decision to try and end their life. But the reason for their suicide attempt was an unexpected, and at that moment in time, an unwanted pregnancy. Some footage from the police reconstruction was shown in season 27 episode 12 of the BBC's investigative documentary series, Panorama. One of the notes I wrote whilst watching this reads, The police did a reconstruction at the scene. It doesn't look very scientific. I believe the police did their best with the reconstruction, but as noted by those campaigning for Eddie's innocence, it wasn't accurate. An example given was the rope that was used. During the reconstruction, the rope that was used by the police officer taking the role of Paula was floppy, whereas the rope Paula had used was stiff and able to be bent and hooked around the beam. Another thing I wondered, but I wasn't able to find any further information of, was the mention that Paula's brother, Peter, had seen an old rope hanging from a beam in the garage before Eddie and Paula had moved into the house. This makes me wonder if that rope was still there, and if it was, if Paula would have even had to get the rope over the beam and tie the knot in the first place. I don't know if this usually happened back in 1992, or even if it still happens today, but I find it slightly concerning that the doctor who conducted the second post-mortem was also the doctor who helped reconstruct the scene. I think that might increase the chances of confirmation bias. Having made some conclusions based on the post-mortem, whether intentionally or not, there might be some inclination to try and confirm their opinions from the post-mortem whilst doing the reconstruction. I also find it concerning that despite the judge saying that tying knots wasn't a medical issue, he still allowed this doctor, and Paula's family's doctor, to give testimony saying she wouldn't have been able to knot the rope. If it wasn't a medical issue, and they weren't experts in tying knots, why allow the jury to even hear that? I'm not a legal expert, so I really don't know the answer to this. If you do, please let me know. The last thing I'd like to say about this case is that I can very much understand where Paula's family are coming from, and I sympathise with them. It can be incredibly difficult to come to terms with the fact that someone you know and love has taken their own life or has done something that unintentionally resulted in their death. Sadly, this is something I also have personal experience of. And while I know that one person's personal experience can't be generalised to everyone, I can understand the need for wanting someone to blame. When I tell people I have a true crime podcast, a question I often get is, why do you want to talk about murder and suicide? My answer to this is to learn from them. So many of the murder cases I've researched and hear of seem to have a lot in common. Perhaps by talking about them and raising awareness of their circumstances, we can spot the warning signs and help prevent it happening to ourselves and our loved ones. And I believe we need to get rid of the stigma and shame surrounding suicide for the exact same reason. If you are feeling depressed and having suicidal thoughts, please reach out for help if you're in the u k you can call o eight hundred fifty eight fifty eight fifty eight or text shout s h o u t to eighty five twenty five eight if you're in the u s please call the national suicide prevention lifeline on one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five and if you're in australia you can call thirteen eleven 14. Paula Gilfoyle was described as a popular, vibrant, outgoing young woman who was well respected in her community. Her mum said she was a lovely girl who was almost too good to be true. Thank you for listening to Turned Up Dead. All sources can be found at turnedupdead.com and there's a link directly to them in the episode description. Remember, If you listen carefully, even the words of liars will tell you the truth.